Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in. This podcast is being developed from members of the Chicago COVID Contact Tracing Corps. The intention of this podcast is to create conveniently accessible content that can further one's understanding of public health concepts relevant to contact tracing. And today, we'll be discussing a general overview of contact tracing, what it is, why we do it, and why it's so important in combating COVID-19. But first, introductions. The Chicago COVID Contact Tracing Corps, referred to here on as Chi Tracing, is a two-year grant for community-based organizations to hire, train, and support 600 individuals to conduct contact tracing in their community. This grant is sponsored by the Chicago Department of Health, and its key administrative partners are the Chicago Cook Workforce Partnership, Malcolm X College, Newark at the University of Chicago, the Sinai Urban Health Institute, and the University of Illinois at Chicago School of Public Health. My name is Conchetta. I'm an MPH student at the USC School of Public Health Division of Community Health Sciences. And it is my privilege to be here today virtually with USC School of Public Health's Associate Director of Epidemiology, Dr. Mark Dworkin. Hello, Dr. Dworkin, welcome. How are you doing today? Hi, fine, thanks, how are you? I'm doing great, thanks. So Dr. Dworkin, you teach public health surveillance and public health outbreak here at UIC. And you've worked on a number of global projects involving outbreak investigations of HIV. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and why you got involved in chi tracing? Yeah, so um, many years ago, I was trained by the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, through their EIS program, Epidemic Intelligence Service. Mm -hmm. And in that two-year program, uh, one of the things they required was that each EIS officer, as they called them, work with a surveillance system and do an evaluation of the surveillance system. And through that, I got an introduction to public health surveillance, and I found it really interesting, and I learned how useful surveillance is. And so from then on, I really felt that uh, public health surveillance was something I wanted to be involved in in one way or another. And I actually went on to work at the Centers for Disease Control after that, and I worked in the surveillance branch of the Division of HIV AIDS. Later on, I worked as the state epidemiologist for the Illinois Department of Public Health. And there I, I uh, utilized a variety of surveillance system data. And, uh, and once I got to the School of Public Health and uh, I was asked, what did I want to teach? Surveillance was definitely something I was interested in in sharing with uh, students, my passion for it and my recognition for its usefulness. And in terms of how I got involved in this particular project, uh, one of the lead uh, investigators in this project reached out to me and I was very glad because um, I wanted to contribute in some way to the, uh, the COVID response. And this seemed like a, a nice harmonious way to be participating in it. Very cool. So you, you know, as part of your participation in chi tracing, you recently gave a um, presentation at the community-based organization orientation. And in that presentation, so you've already talked a little bit about public health surveillance. In that uh, presentation, you talked about how contact tracing is a part of this bigger picture of public health surveillance. How does contact tracing fit in to this bigger picture? Yeah, so when we think about public health surveillance, the whole idea of it is that it's information for action. That's sort of a mantra that I learned 
uh, and that I teach about in my surveillance class. Surveillance is information for action. That is that there are certain diseases that are reportable to the local health department, to the state health department. And that's because it's somebody's job, usually at the local health department, to do something in response to the report of that disease, whether that disease is HIV or it's mumps or it's measles, salmonella, you know, those are all reportable diseases where if there's a case, a doctor or a hospital identifies a case, they're supposed to let the local health department know that they've got a case. And then somebody does something based on that. And sometimes that happens very quickly, whatever that action is that's related to the control of that disease. And sometimes that happens uh, over a much longer period of time where data is looked at, trends in data are looked at, and then they react to those trends, whether they're going up or down in terms of the frequency of that disease or where it's located. So surveillance is very dynamic in that way that there's action associated with it. One of those actions is contact tracing in some diseases. Okay. So then with the COVID-19 pandemic, how do you think contact tracing is critical in our response? So just like with certain other diseases, like let's say whooping cough, when they identify a case of the disease, we know that that particular disease like whooping cough or coronavirus, COVID, we know that it's very contagious, that other people can get it if they've been in close contact with the case. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to control the spread of disease. And so we need to identify who are the close contacts of that case in order to offer them, in the case of whooping cough, to sometimes offer them medication to take so that they don't become the next case. And in the case of, uh, of COVID, we're trying to identify folks in order to potentially change their behavior so that they're not out and about potentially spreading it because they may become the next case. So we talk about things like isolation, if somebody gets sick, we talk about quarantine if somebody has been exposed but they haven't gotten sick so we can watch them and see if they're going to be that next case, but keep them away from other people. So what are some of the data components that you collect in order to, um, as part of the contact tracing that is yeah, done for, or to, to figure this out? Yeah. Yeah. So like when they're investigating a case, they're going to ask them, like, who have you been with recently? And recently might vary for a certain disease versus another disease. But in the case of coronavirus, it's, it's often, uh, for the case of COVID, you know, we're, we're talking about if you're sick, if you're a case and you're sick, we want to know who you've been with during the two days before you got sick, before you noticed you got sick, and all the way through from then on until you finally were isolated from everybody. And sometimes somebody's an asymptomatic case. They don't have any symptoms. They're not sick, but they did get tested for one reason or another, and they're identified to be a case. And in that case, we would say, okay, two days before you got tested until you got isolated. So that's a, an important thing. And asking them, okay, who were you with during this time period? And we are also, or they are also, not, not myself, but the, the folks who are doing this great work, they are also uh, asking them about, well, how much time was spent with these folks, you know, and uh, what distance were you from these people? So, you know, we can assess, 
all right, was it within six feet? That's sort of the magic number currently. And that, that number might change as we get more data in and understand the transmission of this disease. But right now, they've settled on six feet. Were you within six feet? And also, we're looking at how long were you within that distance? You know, has it at least 15 minutes? Again, there's no magic to 15 minutes, but it is the, 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 the time frame threshold that basically uh, most people are being judged by for that exposure. Do you think that sort of, so 15 minutes, proximity within six feet, all of these are really important things to determining if someone might be at risk of catching the disease, um, catching COVID-19. Right. This is helping us determine if somebody is going to be considered a close contact. Because, so a mm-hmm. yeah, because if you're a close one, okay, that's my, my dog. What's your dog's name? Uh, his name is Bo, but it, he should be called Loud. I think that would be a better Maybe it's a two-part name. It's Bo Loud. So while we take a brief intermission for one of our many furry COVID coworkers out there, don't forget to take a drink of water, and we'll be back in a moment. He, he didn't come out, so I did something even better. Are you familiar with Kong? Yeah, with the peanut butter in it? or the Yeah, peanut? I got a frozen Kong out of the freezer. And oh. <laughs> that'll keep busy probably for the remainder of this. He's going to be a happy puppy, that's for sure. <laughs> How long have you had Bo? Uh, a year and about three months. So is he, is he younger then? Did you get him as a puppy? Right. Yeah. So he's yeah. got lots of energy yeah. right now. Yeah. Well, great. Welcome back. Um, we were just discussing what a, a close contact was. So six feet from an infected person for at least 15 minutes, starting two days before the illness, correct? Right. So um, that's a big part of what is going on with these calls with cases in terms of contact tracing is identifying who are these people that have been uh, up close so that they can then get contacted. These close contacts can be contacted in, in order to talk to them. And in your presentation, you also uh, say that some of the key data points that we collect are age and race and immunization history and residence. What's, uh, why is this information important and how do we use that in public health? Yeah, so these are common things that we ask about when we talk to cases of a reportable disease. And this helps us to characterize the, uh, the disease epidemiology, okay? It's distribution and it's determinants, all right? Like risk factors. And so in terms of distribution, we look at things like age, is it more in men versus women or women versus men? Uh, I'm sorry, let me restate that. We're talking about gender. We're talking about, you know, is it more in men or women? We're talking about um, age. Is it more in the young or the old? Or does it just distribute evenly across all ages? And residents can be very important too because we can do mapping and we can see if there's certain neighborhoods, for example, uh, or regions of the city or the county where there's a much higher incidence of disease. And that's important because when you target intervention methods, when you try to do something about this, you're not just diffusing it all over the place, but you actually might target those efforts to where most disease is located. Okay. 
Can you think of an example on how this um, data has been used currently? Well, there's been recognition of health disparities uh, that have mm. been very important to understand the uh, epidemiology of COVID. Uh, for example, we've seen that there's been a higher uh, incidence among uh, African-American and Hispanics. And so this, this kind of data that comes from surveillance helps us recognize that and then ideally to respond to it in a way that then mitigates the, uh, the impact on these populations. So it's helping us to find these target populations so that we can properly create policies and make decisions that impact different communities. Right. It's another example of how surveillance is information for action. You know, we're looking at this data and we're reacting to it. And uh, very often, uh, one of the uses of surveillance can be to create hypotheses and then go after it with research. And so one could say, well, why is this happening? You know, and then, and, and then come up with hypotheses for why this might be happening and then do a research study in order to determine if that is true or not. So this is very important, very important work. Um, in your presentation, you talk more about how this influences the key principles of contact tracing. So to summarize, we have recollection, warning, confidentiality, and education. So for those who haven't seen your presentation um, about those principles, can you tell us a little bit about those principles and why they're so important to implement each one during the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, so like for, for recollection, uh, the idea is, you know, asking people to recall who they've been in close contact with so we can get that list of people that we want to try to help prevent become the next generation of transmitters if, if they end up being a case. And then uh, in terms of uh, warning, we want to then let those close contacts know what's going on. You've, you've been exposed, and we want to do that rapidly, get to them as soon as possible, uh, but also sensitively, because it's going to be concerning if they don't already know that that's, that's occurred, which a lot of folks don't. And then confidentiality is really important, because all of this is done without revealing the name of the case to the person. So mm -hmm. it's, uh, you know, when, when this is going on, um, it's very much on a need to know kind of a basis. And, and the issue is not so much who you were exposed to, but that you were exposed. In terms of beyond that, we're really interested in the educational aspect of it, of transferring what we know as public health professionals to these people who are close contacts. We want them to understand uh, to what extent they're at risk for getting the disease. We want them to understand that they need to separate themselves from others who are not exposed, that they should monitor themselves for illness uh, in order to determine if they might be getting sick because then they're gonna wanna let the health department know that as well as to potentially get medical attention and testing and uh, the possibility that they could spread infection to others even if they don't feel ill. In other words, we have some people who are asymptomatic. We want to make sure we educate them about that so that they don't dismiss things just because they're not ill if they've been right. exposed. Right, definitely. You know, and I, I, you mentioned sensitivity, and I was thinking about this before we started our conversation. 
contact tracers have to educate, as you mentioned, they have to educate at-risk individuals on these uncomfortable topics. Um, in the past, you've worked with HIV, which, you know, until very recently was an extremely um, uncomfortable topic for some people. I'm curious, have you experienced a situation or know of situations where maybe a participant is panicked or in denial about their risk? And how have you seen these um, best these these situations approached, or are, they need, are there any best practices in approaching these situations? Yeah, I'm definitely aware of people who are concerned that they've been exposed, uh, whether or in some cases they were told that they they were exposed to a case, and in some cases they're concerned that they've been in a situation where it was high risk and a great deal of anxiety ensued. So anyone doing this kind of work needs to be very sensitive to the fact that they're likely to trigger some people in terms of their anxiety level. Certainly we're watching the news and we're seeing a lot of alarming information on a regular basis about this disease. So that's on the one hand, it's a good thing we all take it seriously if we take that sort of information seriously, which we should. Um, on the other hand, it's coming at us uh, all day long. Whenever you turn on the news, you get the death count, you get a giant case count. It's only growing. It only gets bigger. And you get words, you know, on the news about anxiety and fear and so on. Um, dramatic. And there's so much unknown about how we're going to, if we have, a, if we are, if we are one of those cases, there's so much still unknown in terms of how our body will react to it. Yeah. And so you know that some people have suffered greatly and some people have been asymptomatic, but the suffered greatly is what you're most concerned with. It's very frightening. And so uh, people doing this kind of work need to be very mindful of being sensitive uh, with those and uh, helping them get the education they need. In terms of best practices, I think that's something that uh, is going to continue to develop. I don't have um, a magic answer. It, it, it's often down to people's communication skills and their sensitivity to the people they're talking to, their knowledge of the population they're talking to and any biases or any assumptions or any educational levels that they're dealing with with whatever population they're, they're working with, any cultural beliefs. Being sensitive and knowledgeable about those up front would be helpful. And then being very mindful of and present with that person in terms of sensing where are they at with this? What am I hearing from them? Um, how can I reassure them to a realistic extent while also validating their feelings because their feelings are not just going to go away. So it's, it's an art and, and some people are very good at that kind of thing. Some people who maybe have experience with counseling or disease investigation, they may have uh, experience with that, and that's very helpful. I really like how you bring up um, mindfulness and being in the moment, remembering that you know each case is an individual and not just a case, right? Um, they'll all have their different contexts and their different resources in which they can take care of the situation. Right. This is the kind of thing that you want guidelines for or guidance, but not a script. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. So I, you know, I think one of the exciting things about having community-based organizations like with Chai Tracing 
um, having them manage contact tracing is that there's sort of a more personal supportive framework um, and a cultural understanding that allows that gives support to the investigation um, that would be like we've mentioned very personal to some people and but i think one of the challenge is to this one of the challenges to this is while when you know someone in your community is need of help you want to help them so in your experience i'm wondering how have you have you seen and how have you seen individuals manage the inability to do it all um, for example i'm thinking of you know, maybe someone won't have the resources to quarantine themselves. They can't find daycare for their children or they don't feel like they can miss work. Um, is this something that you've seen people have to react to? And do you know if there's any resources or best practices in addressing this? Yeah, that's not something I've seen myself uh, a great deal, but it makes a lot of sense that it needs to be anticipated and this kind of problem uh, is really, I don't know to what extent it can be surmounted. In other words, if you have responsibilities and you're told you have to stay at home, you know, and then there's a lot that goes on in your head, you know, when you're trying to weigh out what you must do and what you must do, you know, in, in your own mind. And, uh, you know, we want public health to be the biggest uh, factor in that, and and that's critical. But uh, it's very hard to dismiss some of these competing interests that that people have when they're dealing with these kinds of restrictions. Um, that can heighten people's anxiety, and also uh, over time it can lead to uh, other problems like even depression. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Fatigue in the position, I'm sure, is something that at one point or another, um, contact tracers might have to be mindful of and practice self care in regard for to combat. So, I, you know, on a brighter note, thinking about contact tracing and try tracing, what is exciting you most about the work that we're setting out to do? Well, one of the things that I'm, I'm really excited about is the fact that this is being done through community organizations. And so it's recruiting people from communities who know their community. And that's a real strength. And so I'm, I'm really glad to be affiliated with something that's, that's approaching this kind of a problem that way. I think health departments do a great job at this kind of work, but obviously this is uh, an epidemic that is above and beyond nearly everything that's been encountered in, in a, a great deal of time. And so uh, it, they benefit from this assistance where contact tracing is, is being essentially delegated out to, in this case, community organizations. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that, that sensitivity and that knowledge you know, from the community, that's just fantastic. That, that's gonna be a real asset. Definitely. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Dr. Dworkin. Um, we, we really appreciate you. All right. Thank you very much. And that's a wrap for the first Chai Tracing podcast with Dr. Dworkin. My name's Conchetta. Thank you for listening. We'll close you out with some royalty-free music courtesy of John Bartman. Stay safe, Chicago.